Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Welcome to Take It From Us. Hope you've had a really good week. Personally, I've, I've had an interesting week. I'll tell you all about that very shortly. Uh, we've got some really interesting people to talk to on the program today. We'll hear from Sean McNeil from the Health Quality and Safety Commission. Uh, he's worked a lot for years and years and years, has a lot of experience, both lived experience and also as an advocate for suicide prevention. Uh, we've got people south of Auckland doing some tremendous work. We'll hear from Tony Ann Matata and Dallas Fall. They've been so good at what they've been doing, working hard to prevent suicide south of Auckland. They've actually picked up awards. Their, their work has been recognised. Uh, also on the programme today, Glenda Irwin talking some mindfulness and positive psychology. You know, what is it that we can do to look after ourselves better at this time just by being mindful and, and thinking about how we're going? Really looking forward to hearing what Glenda has to say. Uh, my week, I hope your week's been better than mine because my family, myself, and my lovely partner, Laura, and our two young kids, we have been struck down by the virus. Uh, we picked it up. We've all tested positive for COVID-19. So what happened was my partner and I were awake Friday morning, coincidentally both of us lying awake at 3.30. And I was thinking, man, I'm feeling pretty rubbish here. I've got a, I've got a terrible sore throat. I didn't realise that Laura was lying awake next to me. She said, hey, have you got a sore throat as well? I said, yes, I, yes, I have. And... The next morning, my so that would have been Friday, kids were okay. We decided to stay at home. I cancelled a couple of appointments. My little girl went to school. She was okay. My son was staying at home anyway. And then later that night, Friday night, my, my daughter, after having been at school, she said, Daddy, I'm not feeling very well. I have a sore tummy. And what we've been able to work out, of course, is that for young kids, gastro bugs, vomiting or diarrhoea is actually a symptom of this Omicron variant. Long story short, come Saturday morning, it was pretty apparent that all of us were crook. We've all taken tests. By day three, Laura and I were both positive with the rats test. On day kids, they came up positive. And so clearly we've, we've made the call that uh, we're staying at home for the next week. Uh, actually, that's, that's great. We've had some nice family time. Uh, the, the, the illness, the sickness hasn't been very good, I have to be honest. Uh, but just having the family time at home, being stuck at home, that hasn't been a big deal. You know, we did 108 days in lockdown late last year. I think we can do seven or eight. That's not the problem. But I, I do need to tell you what we've experienced as a about this virus. It ain't flash. You know, please don't wish this upon yourself. Don't hope to get it. Don't think, hey... If I get it now, it's great because then um, I'm going to get it anyway. It's better to get it now. Not everyone in New Zealand will get this and, and have the, the sickness and the illness that has come through our house. You know, I've had worse, I've felt worse from viruses than this, but this is a good one. It's knocked us around. Uh, a lot of lethargy, a lot of uh, bad muscle aches, terrible sore throats, head cold. You know, apologies if you can hear that in me now. Um, just blowing our noses really poor energy. Thankfully, no one's been sick, but our symptoms would classify as being mild and this virus has knocked us around. It reminds me of going to the doctor 
and when you're feeling crook and the doctor says, well, look, there's very little I can do, just go home and rest up. This is a viral infection. We can't do anything for you. Now, that's happened to me on a number of occasions over the years, and there's probably been two or three times I've felt worse than this, but this is a decent virus. It will knock you around. And the scary thing for me is I've had three vaccinations. I'm fully vaccinated. So too is my partner. My daughter has had her first shot. This virus is not to be trifled with. Please don't have people tell you that it's mild, that you'll get through it okay. It's not a big deal. It's just like a seasonal flu. These people are misinformed and they're passing off poor information. This thing needs to be taken seriously, and it's something that we do your best to try and avoid and, you know, try not to get sick, please. That would be my message. Um, our family's starting to feel a lot better. As I say, we'll be at home for the next few days. Uh, but most of the bad stuff has been and gone. But we are going to do our bit and stay at home and look after ourselves and by extension look after the community. And for anyone else who's gone through it or is going through it at the moment, I sincerely hope that you're going okay, that you've been going maybe a little bit better than us. And if you would like to leave us a comment, that will be uh, most appreciated. You can do that on our Facebook page as well. It's finally here, eh? After two years of talking about COVID-19 in New Zealand, a lot of people now finally know someone that has the virus. They've got friends and family members that have it, or you might even be a person listening to the program, just like me, who actually now has the virus and can speak to your own experience. We would appreciate that. Jump aboard our Facebook page. Take it from us. That's my week. It's been an interesting one. We'll get through it. We'll be okay. Karen's on board today, as always. Uh, we'll hear from Karen later in the program for today's Sheldon shout-out. First up on our program today on Take It From Us, it'll be Sean McNeil from the Health Quality and Safety Commission. You're listening to Take It From Us. My story, your story, our story. Sean McNeil has worked and volunteered in mental health and suicide prevention for more than 35 years, 24 of those in Scotland and the past 11 years here in New Zealand. He's been the chair of the advisory group to depression.org.nz and has advised the New Zealand government on suicide prevention in addition to training police first responders and the general public on suicide prevention and intervention. He now is working for the Health Quality and Safety Commission. Sean, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Take It From Us. Considering the way in which the world is moving at the moment, you coping okay? Yes, it's uh, it's certainly interesting times and we've all had to make adjustments, but um, I can fairly easily work from my rural lifestyle block here in the Horofenoa. And so, um, yeah, I'm managing to continue with all of the advocacy that I am doing in mental health and addictions from here almost as easily as I was when I was in the office in Wellington. It's quite the resume you have and and quite the story you can tell. And we want to get into your personal story uh, just a little bit later today. But just to start with, of, of the work that you've been doing recently, how have you been trying to improve the mental health and addiction services to make them safer? Yeah, I mean, in the last 20 years or so, there have been much more openness and accountability in terms of the service provision. There's more public reporting of data, for example, so we can more easily track how things are going and more avenues for people to raise concerns if they have concerns. So gone are the days 
like when I um, started nursing 30 uh, years ago, um, where things can happen, if you like, in the back wards and, and nobody hears about it. That's much rarer now. So, And there are things in terms of government policy uh, and um, the um, national report for the government inquiry into mental health and addiction, Ha'ara Oranga, it recommended a national discussion with wide sector involvement to consider um, the beliefs and evidence and attitude, the whole balance in mental health about um, risk and safety, etc. And I think that's a really welcome um, development that is going to happen because we really need that to try and transform some of the attitudes and as I say, that balance between safe and managed risk-taking and um, empowering people to recover from the distress that they're experiencing. What attitudes need to change in our community? Well, the current system is and current attitudes are too focused on perceived risk and perceived dangerousness and things, um, and that's only led to increased coercive practices and um, people experiencing compulsion under the mental health legislation and things like that where we need a much more humanistic, human rights based, trauma informed um, approach to people in mental distress um, greater involvement of peers and cultural advisors and yeah, just a, that's part of the transformation that I think that we are looking for, a much more compassionate and humanistic um, mental health and addiction system of, of care and support. You talk about the peer support and, and clearly people with lived experience. Has that improved greatly in, in the last, say, 20 years as far as you're concerned? So it probably improved in the previous 10 years, but in the last 10 years, it has kind of either stayed still or gone backwards a little bit. And so it's definitely something that we are um, hoping that the government are going to look at um, investing and supporting the lived experience workforce, because actually this is much more, the transformation that we need is much more about more nurses and more doctors and it is not necessarily more beds. Actually from the work that we've been doing in the the Health Quality and Safety Commission um, who I work for, we've seen really good practice-based evidence that the involvement of people with lived experience and the involvement of people who come from a cultural perspective make a huge difference in terms of the quality of care and the the um, the levels of um, coercion and things like um, the levels of medication and the levels of assaults etc when people are in hospital so it's really important for us to have that that diversity of the workforce and availability of um, both peer support and cultural support much more throughout the country why has it stagnated for want of a better term in the last 10 years it's related to what we spoke about already in terms of risk and safety um there's a perception that it's it's a more risky thing to do um but i think that we're now acknowledging that we can't magic up um mental health nurses or doctors we know that there's a 
a national shortage, whereas we have an underutilised lived experience um, workforce potentially, and we also have um, people who can work in cultural specific um, positions. And therefore, it really just takes um, some coordination in terms of the system to look at what's working and what's working well and to try and replicate that in different parts of the country. There are some really, really good areas of excellent practice and then there are some areas where there's nothing or next to nothing at all and so we just need a more a more you know um uniform approach a, a better oversight of the whole system Sean, i know that you've got many progr- uh, projects on the go at the moment one of those is zero seclusion can you tell us what does this look like yeah so the, the project is called Zero Seclusion, Safety and Dignity for All, and that's really important because it is about creating a more safer environment, not only for people who are using services, but also for the staff who are working in the services as well. Um, but the practice of seclusion, which is also known as solitary confinement, is something that has been government policy for over a decade in Aotearoa um, to to um, end Um, it's contrary to the United Nations Convention on Persons with Disabilities um, and it is traumatic both for the person who is being secluded and for the staff who are doing the seclusion as well and indeed for anybody that's witnessing the practice and so we've been working with all of the DHBs in Aotearoa that practice seclusion to further reduce the practice. So there had been a significant reduction and then there'd been a plateauing of progress. So the Health Quality and Safety Commission had brought in some quality improvement um, ways of doing things to try to get that downward trajectory going again. And we've had some, um, some success in that now and we're now seeing some district health boards who are reaching zero seclusion um, and one district health board that's actually staying at zero. So that's really uh, encouraging. Um, And what also is encouraging is we've just had a consultation on the new mental health legislation that is coming round the bend. And it's really looking strongly like that um, the practice of seclusion will no longer be possible in that new legislation and therefore we've got a finite end in a couple of years time when that legislation comes into effect so we know that now we're working towards um, uh, enabling the alternatives to the practice of seclusion so that um, seclusion can be eliminated from Aotearoa altogether. Yeah it kind of seems hard to believe given the science and that's been around for so long that that I mean, essentially, Sean, you're talking about solitary confinement. seems hard to believe that is still a practice. That's right. Um, Not that long ago, it was um, found out that it was happening in some school environments. And when it became public knowledge, that was really quickly um, stopped. Um, And so it's a bit ironic. Why is it um, not okay to do to school children, but it's okay to do with people who are experiencing mental distress or who are um, intoxicated with drugs, etc. And, 
you know, we don't we don't say this lightly. We know that um, there are some real challenges in dealing with the behaviour and how people present to some of the services, but there are definitely ways of um, dealing with individuals and coping with individuals. Um, without ever having to lock them in a in a seclusion cell, a solitary confinement cell, and as you say, it's used as a punishment in the corrections service. Um, so, effectively, why are we punishing people who are ill and coming to us for care and support? Yeah, it certainly begs the question, and, and something to ponder. I, I wanted to get your thoughts too on suicide prevention. So much is said about this. I, I'm not sure if many of us know what that should actually look like. What should it look like? Suicide prevention is complex, of course. Um, It's one of these areas where it's actually um, different strokes work for different folks, if you like. Um, But um, there are some real basic things that we can do in the community that that would help. Um, One of the things I used to ask the police when I used to train the police about suicide prevention was how many of them knew the neighbours that lived either side of them. And it's really surprising how how few of them actually knew even the names of their neighbours. So one of the things that's just really important is human connection. You know, know your neighbour... Um, and try to uh, reach out to people and try to build community. It's very easy in the society that we have today to be quite disconnected, to go to work, to go home in your little box and stay in your little box and not necessarily reach out to community, etc. So it's really, really important for us to have those connections and particularly in these times of um, COVID, you know, we are by nature social animals and our days are full of connection and disconnection usually. And so it's really important for us to have those connections in our in our lives. You know, if if we don't connect with people, then we won't be able to pick up signals for when they are struggling because it's a fallacy to say to people, oh, well, just reach out for help mm. because... You know, I've been suicidal myself and I couldn't always reach out for help. Sometimes I needed people to reach in to me and therefore people to um, look at me and think, actually, Sean's not doing too good today or he's not sounding too good. Mm. So I'm going to have the courage to not just recognise that but say, are you doing okay, mate? Is there anything I can do for you? Even if it's just to sit with you and not say anything. It's not about us needing to fix people because, you know, that's not necessarily going to happen. Um, you don't need to listen to somebody and feel like you need to respond. You can just be there for somebody, reach out to somebody and just be in that space with them. Just your presence may help them get over that really difficult time that they're going through. You're listening to Take It From Us. Our guest is Sean McNeil health, from the Health Quality and Safety Commission. Sean, we heard about your background and your lived experience. You, you've talked about being suicidal yourself. What needed to happen for you to get where you are today and where did you find the optimism from where you could think of a brighter future for yourself? Yeah, thanks, Kent. That's a a really difficult thing to put into a short period of time. But yes, at one point in my life, I was quite mentally unwell. 
Um, my marriage broke down. I lost contact with my children, lost my job, became bankrupt, and for a very short time was street homeless as well. So it's at those times in your life where you think, actually, things can't get much worse than they are right now. Um, so you could say that the, the only way was up from there. Um, one of the things that helped me, and it's a bit of a surprise even to myself to say this, that, that this helped me because um, it's not something that I would generally have an affinity to, but there's a guy called Tony Robbins. He's an American motivational speaker. And a lot of his speaking is about business and about wealth creation, but actually there's a core there as well about um, about um, not ruminating on things, about trying to master your emotions a bit better and also to take some action as well. Because one of the things that I would do would be withdraw and then ruminate on how awful my situation was, and that wasn't getting me anywhere or getting making me feel any better at all. So I decided to try and take some action. And even though I was really socially anxious, I was quite socially anxious, um, I got out there and I started to look for a voluntary position. And once I got a voluntary position, that actually gave me a little bit of structure and also made me feel a little bit valued that actually I had something to contribute. Mm. Because when I was suicidal, I thought, well, I've got nothing to give and nobody would miss me being here. So, you know, there's no point. Whereas that volunteering role made me feel a bit of value and gave me the structure that was sufficient for me to then get gain the confidence to actually return to working. And the other big thing in my life that transformed was um, rediscovering a relationship and rediscovering love, of course. Um, that I was incredibly lucky to find a new role, a new love, new passions, and eventually a new country coming from Scotland to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, and, and so those are some of the things that helped um, me in my particular circumstance. That pathway to getting out there, to being more active, to um, volunteering, to getting a little bit of my self-esteem back, to um, trying to get a job and not being too disheartened with the rejections and to um, connecting with people and gaining a new uh, living relationship, etc. Um, and, and also finding a community as well. So it was probably around then that I connected much more with the lived experience community and started to become more of a activist as well as an advocate for um, the lived experience voice and the fact that actually services and clinicians need us. They need our perspectives. They need to hear what we need and what we want. And, and so, yeah, that all that all helped to turn things around for myself. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And it's it's such a powerful one and, and, and an inspiring one. And you got me thinking too, just a couple of minutes ago when you talked about essentially not... <sighs> In some situations, it's, it's difficult to ask for help. We, we need our friends and family, our loved ones, to, to help us first by putting their hands up and asking. Um, and I think that's food for thought for everybody. What should we be looking for as a friend, as a, as a confidant, as a loved one, when we, 
want to help people. Yeah, going back to what I said earlier about suicide prevention, it's kind of about being neighbourly and community-minded. It's about offering some of yourself and taking a few risks. I think people, and, and I totally understand this, but people can be a bit afraid of, oh, well, I don't want to ask a question because it might make things worse or whatever. It's very, very unlikely to make things worse if you are coming from a place of inquiry, a place of compassion and saying to somebody, um, I don't think you're looking that good today. Is there anything that I can do? Can I spend some time with you? Um, is there anything that you want me to get for you? Um, can I help you access some support or a service if you're already engaged in a service? There's something about um, being vulnerable ourselves to connect with somebody else who is having a real vulnerable, difficult um, moment. And, um, you know, we've all got challenges in our lives at some point in time. You know, it's not all wine and roses the whole time. Um, I've I've done a little bit of work with, um, with Mike King and stuff, you know, and he talks a lot about that, about, you know, life isn't great all of the time. And um, uh, I know that um, Dave Latelli talked about what Mike says about, you know, your inner critic as well, this nagging voice that is saying you're not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think you've got to try to ensure that um, things are put in perspective because... Uh, some people you come across in your life are going to be critical and are going to be negative, etc. If you can distance yourself from those people, try to steer clear of the negativity and try to be the better person. It's not about you, it's about them. You know, we're very quick to to criticise ourselves and think, oh, it must have been something I said or something I'd done. But in the, in the majority of cases, it's actually about the other person. It's not about you. And offer support to people that you think are struggling. Don't feel too pressured, as I said. You don't have to fix people. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to be a human and just be compassionate and make a heart-to-heart connection. It doesn't need to be a mind-to-mind connection. You don't need to be a PhD or a doctor or somebody that is really um, trained in suicide or suicide prevention, you just need to come to them as a compassionate human who cares about them and wants to help to keep them safe and get them through any difficulties that they're having. What are you hopeful for, Sean? Well, we've got a great opportunity this year with Health New Zealand and the Maori Health Authority being created And therefore, I'm really hopeful that we're on a journey towards a more joined-up health system. Um, Really important one that works better for Maori and Pacific peoples because we're actually failing our Maori and Pacific people in terms of their health right now. But also one that's more diverse in terms of the menu of the supports and treatments that it offers. Um, one where the, the value of lived experience is considered equal to academic or clinical experience and a mental health and addiction system that truly supports and cares for people. It, it asks 
what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. And that's really important because when it's something that's happened to you or is happening to you, it's something that doesn't mean that you're a broken person. It just means that you're going through some challenges at the moment and there is an other side to those kind of challenges. Um, we really need a system, as I said before, where human rights and disability rights are more prominent and individuals' wishes and desires are um, respected more. And things like um, coercion and force and um, mm-hmm. solitary confinement, seclusion are consigned to the past. They are things that happened in the past but are no longer acceptable in a new and modern mental health and addiction system. Sean, I really appreciate your time having a chat to us. So informative. Really thank you so much for your time on Take It From Us.
You are listening to Take It From Us. Love that track. That is Gabrielle and Rise. Now, staying with the theme of suicide prevention, uh, Tony Ann Matara and Dallas Fall work to support people each day within their professional roles at Ember, which is a service which supports people experiencing mental addiction or intellectual disability needs. Over the past year, recognising a need for support for the local rugby community, Tony Ann and Dallas have connected with local rugby clubs, providing a safe space for Korero, whether that be on the rugby field, in the club rooms or in the car park. They've partnered with local rugby clubs to equip them with the skills to support staff and this work has now started to extend out into other parts of the community, such as farmers. Uh, their work was recently recognised in the 2021 Life Keepers Awards. They were awarded the big award for contribution to suicide prevention. Uh, Tony Ann and Dallas, so nice to have you both on our program. Thanks for talking with us today. Now, Dallas, what is top of mind and what's going on in the community at the moment? So, um, pretty much sports back up and running again. Um, bit of a meeting place for guys to unwind and that, and some of them are sharing their problems about work, and some of them don't have work as well. So, the as I said, the rugby club's probably a bit of an outlet for some guys just to share and catch up. Mm. Yeah, I'll keep your thoughts very shortly on, on what you've been doing with this tremendous program that you've set up in the Franklin area. At this time, though, Tony Ann, you've, you've been, you know, as part of suicide prevention now for a number of years with what's happened with the pandemic, um, with what's happened with unemployment, with what's been happening with, with the prices of everything and, and how much everything is costing. What's, what changes have you seen for better or worse recently? Yeah, so good question. Um, currently, we're seeing a lot of uh, a big impact on youth, um, isolation, um, not being able to do what they would normally do. Um, we've been building phone calls from concerned parents or grandparents to ask us to go and have a chat with them so they're not sure what avenue to go to, but... Um, they're, they're asking us just to go and sit and have a chat with um, the young person to see what's happening. The kids aren't talking. They're not good at talking to adults, but when you can send in somebody that has a rugby background that can talk about a rugby ball, they're much more likely to open. So, um, yeah, the pr price of living has increased tenfold, and so we're seeing lots of people just needing to... Um, be able to navigate to the right services. So sometimes, a lot of the time, people don't know what service is available and a lot of our support is navigating to the right service and walking alongside people rather than doing for people. Mm. Um, so that's a lot of our work at the moment. Mm. Dallas, tell us how this initiative came about to get to rugby clubs and have grown men talk about their feelings in front of their mates. Yeah, so, so there was a, a, a bet out in the community, which was um, the guys pretty well known to a few rugby clubs. Um, a lot of guys spoke spoke about it, but didn't really speak about it. You know, it's, it's a bit hush-hush. So I, I spoke to a couple of guys and got a few other bulky senior men from clubs together and organised a bit of a meeting to, to prevent this happening again and to see how we can support each other. So that year's more or less how it all started. Um, mm. And that was a number of years now. How, how effective has the program been in the last few years? Yeah, so that was probably three years ago. Um, 
one club in particular, Wuth, who have sort of set up their own podcast and that. They call it uh, Alpha Spectrum. Um, speaking to them, they've had a couple of issues because they've gone out to try and save the world and they haven't been trained or nothing. So they've learned within themselves that people will come to them and then they will signpost them or navigate them on to the right people. They've made themselves aware that they are not the people to to, to save save the world. So they're more or less, because they're closer on the ground community, people are more comfortable talking to them. Mm. And they have such good trust with us, so their word is as good as bond to refer them on to us and for us to refer them again where they ever be. Well, imagine too, Dallas, it's quite a powerful experience seeing men open up and talk to each other like they have been. Yeah, yeah, so the guys... The guys that we got at the meeting, the, the senior bulky, a uh, couple of bikies, uh, you know, a couple of wannabe gangsters, I suppose, but they're high-profile people in the community that uh, we target them because they're the leaders, everyone will follow them, but we didn't expect them to actually open up and break down some of the issues that they've been through themselves. Tony Ann, is there still that stigma for men in particular to come forward and talk about their feelings because it's perceived as being weak. Is that still there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I think things help, like the Telenor program and um, things that Dallas could do at rugby. You know, if you expose yourself and make yourself vulnerable to other men around you, the flow-on effect is um, just multiplies. You know, if we can all show our vulnerability... um, you don't know who you're going to touch and how that's going to affect other people and that flow-on effect. So, um, yeah, little by little it's changing. But um, And from what we've seen with the rugby clubs, there was some massive change within those rugby clubs that we saw at the time. Um, would be interesting to go back to some of them and see if that's still the case, see if they followed through with some of their plans, um, you know, a couple of years down the track. But... Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's still there. It's getting better. Getting better. Mm. Dallas, how about alcohol and the role that plays? Yeah, alcohol. Um, a couple of the boys said, you know, they they have issues, but you know, to just have a beer will, will, will solve the problem, which has been an issue for years and years and years. And it, it's more of a band aid more than anything. Alcohol. Then again, it could get worse because you know your, your thoughts and emotions are running all over the place. Alcohol probably doesn't help at all. But also, another guy shared that for him to have alcohol, it made him open up more. You know, it made him feel real comfortable because he, you know he finally got it off his chest and was after having a few beers. So he was he was all for the alcohol. You know, so it made him come forward. Mm. That's what you were saying. Yeah, I, I imagine therefore that not one fits all approach is, is going to be appropriate, is it? That you have to find that balance between what works for some and what works for others and, and just as long as you're getting them to, to come forward then you're hopefully succeeding is that the way you look at it? Yeah, so one of the, as I said the, the guys that we targeted were the, the macho the, the backbone of the clubs but for the younger guys they were going through issues but they didn't really know who to talk to or who to trust because they look at these guys on a pedestal as like, you know, the, the tough guys and that once these guys started talking openly in the changing room with all the young ones as well, it was, just, it was open free for them. They built the trust with the young guys to talk to, to just to talk to someone. 
you know, it's shown that it's okay to not be okay. It's it's okay to not be okay. That that's yeah. that would land well with most people, wouldn't it? Yeah, a- absolutely. And we we reiterated constantly that um, you don't have to have the answers. You just have to be able to listen, and you need to know where to direct or walk somebody to to get the help that you need. And once people understand that they're more likely to be able to open up and be vulnerable and offer themselves as a support person. Um, Some people, I think, don't open up because they're scared that they don't know what to do and Mm. they'd rather not know. Once you kind of get over that and realise, I don't have to have the answers, I just need to walk somebody to the GP or to somebody that knows, then you're more likely to get people to open up. So it's a case of not trying to fix a person... It's, it's merely helping them and sometimes helping them is, is enough. Absolutely, absolutely. And when, when we saw that the guys got that message, um, you know, the, people all the time want to know, how do I do it, how do I do it, what do I do that you do? You can't teach that kind of stuff. You can just listen and you can mm. take them on, let's, I can come yeah. with you to the GP or we can go and talk to somebody Um once people understand that, they're much more comfortable. Mm. I know that you've been working in this area now, both of you, for a long time, and, and you're passionate about it. Is is there a a silver bullet per se to to try and a cure all for, to prevent suicide? No, you both. You, no, no, both not no. In, no. Yeah. I, I, I thought you were both shaking your head then. Yeah. 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 No, unfortunately, and people people all the time say, how do I fix it? What's the silver bullet? There is no silver bullet. Mm. You know, it's all of those things in our lives. Um, you, you know, if you look at Te Whare Tapapa, what bit of the whare is falling over that we need to kind of support and hold up to be able to um, all have full lives? Uh, you know, if we all have the right supports in place, was able to get the support, know where to get the support and actually have the support available to us, then our houses would be full. You know, if, if society worked that way, then we wouldn't have suicide. I just, um, when I, I was at a tangi a few years ago of a young um, girl that had committed suicide and it broke my heart to hear her nana said, if I knew what that doctor knew, I could have saved her. And when I went up and had a chat with her later and got more information, we had to talk about that. And and she thought that the doctor had the answers. She she was really upset that she hadn't packed up to take her moko to the daughter to the doctor to get the silver bullet that she needed. Mm. Um, so that was really sad. That really hit home for me that she didn't feel that as a nana that she could have that conversation and support her mukul. Um Yeah, that, that was a sad time. Mm. I, I imagine, though, Dallas, on a brighter note, you've now got some real role models in the community, guys that have opened up, they've talked about their feelings and are now helping others. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're really... Uh, moving forward, like they still ask me 
questions and I said, you, you, you know the answers now, you, you know what to do, but it's just the reassurance, I suppose. Um, yeah, and it's more openly now. It's more, it's discussed more freely, suicide, but in rugby now, yeah. It's more a more normal conversation yeah. than a, you know, whisper. So when, when, we, um, when we were doing some of this stuff, rather than some of the younger guys um, talking to Dallas in the changing room, they would wait till he went to his car and they'd sneak up behind him because there was that stigma and they didn't want to talk openly. Um, but, yeah, things things are changing in that yeah. world when they've got the right support and mentors in place. Yeah, if we just had a lot more mentors <laughs> in place to have those conversations. Well... Well, things are changing too because of people like yourselves, because of the, the work and the dedication and, and the empathy and the vulnerability that you have shown. And so I, I really thank you so much for that and appreciate your time on Take It From Us today. Thank you so much. This is Take It From Us. Real stories, real life, as told by you. Take it from us. One way to calm our minds is to practice mindfulness. But how can we make it a powerful practice to help ourselves every day? Glenda Irwin has had 15 years of teaching mindfulness and meditation and has a steadfast belief in the benefits of positive psychology. Glenda's Red Letter Mindfulness and Positive Psychological Services are based in Auckland and Waikato. And she now joins us on Take It From Us. Glenda, thank you so much for your time. Personally, what are you most mindful of right now? What I am most mindful of at the moment is this unique time in which we live. Absolutely never, ever encountered by any planet person on the planet currently that mm. we are in, involved in a pandemic, that there are threats to the safety of people in Europe and possibly the world. These things are challenging for us, very, very challenging mm. times, yeah. And how does practising mindfulness and meditation counter those enormous challenges, particularly at a time when we are feeling vulnerable and scared and afraid? Yeah, it's such a good question, Ken, and it's so important to answer this question publicly. It's uh, that man-in-the-mirror kind of approach. I have a nervous system, and it is triggered by both environmental and emotional threats. These times that are real, that are about our health or the health of our loved ones, these are real threats, and my nervous system responds to that if you like it reacts it triggers the fight flight freeze faint we, we've heard of those things and these are our natural biological responses to threat with mindfulness and meditation a very 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 simple but not easy process of bringing oneself to the present moment through being aware of the senses in the body just turning inward we tip we tip the response of our nervous reaction into a parasympathetic response. So not the sympathy of, oh, my gosh, fight, flee, fright, faint, but rather, oh, hold on, I'll slow down, I'll put some space into this experience, stress and anxiety. So on one hand, we've got, I guess, the more, let's, let's say, the formal practice of meditation. And on the other hand, there is just being mindful each and every day. What are some of the things that we could all do just to be mindful each day? 
Yeah. So wonderful you mentioned meditation. It's formal practice. Not everyone finds meditation their taste, you know, but it is a really great way to anchor mm. that in your very deep inner brain. Now, mindful, what I call informal practice, is indeed exactly what you said. It's being in the body, actually. Uh, we refer to six senses because the five we learn at school, which is, you know, taste, touch, smell, etc., and also treating our thoughts as a sense because they don't stop unless we entangle in them and grow them. So we watch them come and go. I would suggest a really great way for listeners to just start this process of igniting a new nervous response is to learn to take some nurturing breaths. And when I say nurturing, this really compassionate act, Kent, that is like, oh, my goodness, I'm experiencing a busy mind or an emotional trigger. Breathing in consciously a little deeper and allowing yourself to breathe out a little slower than usual. Consciously choosing to do three breaths like that is a really good way to be mindful in your daily behaviors. It's not easy to remember, but then the struggle, the suffering is the thing that might trigger us to remember. And then we begin to train our brain and make new habits. So three mindful breaths is a really good start. So the, the two pillars of mindfulness one is awareness. Most people could probably grasp that concept. The second pillar, though, is acceptance. And I know I sometimes find it really hard to accept the thoughts that I have in my head at the time. How do we deal with those thoughts that aren't great and just be able to stay with them? Yeah. Yeah, This you've so hit the nail on the head. In fact, everything, and that starts with a attention, acknowledgement, affection, mm. everything, these qualities um, with mindfulness. And the awareness thing is the, is the big nut there. When we become self-aware as a therapist, my greatest ambition for my clients is self-awareness. When we're aware, we then have the tools to make changes. So the meditation will bring that about. We'll begin to calm and see the wood for the trees first. The acceptance is hard. We don't want to have catastrophizing thoughts. The last thing in the world we want is that. And so with awareness when it's happening, we say, I notice it's here. I don't accept that that's the way life is and that I have to put up with it and I'm, you know, some sort of at the whim of this mind. The acceptance is it's here. Practice. Get the spaciousness. Feel the relief because there, therein comes the nut of why we do it. We actually do feel the benefit. Hmm. And note, oh, that worked I commit to trying it again. Yeah, I commit to try this again. So awareness first, we're training ourselves to be present so we can see what's going on and then naming it as here, not, not the totality of life, but here now. All things change. Everything is in the process of change. Yeah. And can you please tell us about what you describe as the continuum of wellness? 
Okay. Yeah, well, I um, did my training in psychology at AUT, great city that we live in, and um, I discovered uh, positive psychology there, which is really aligned with my beliefs. Um, I've been a mindfulness teacher for years and years, and I've been banging on about, but what about the good? I'm sure the good has something to do with this. And indeed, positive psychology believes we have a continuum of health. Yes, zero exists. And I think probably, you know, most medical models want us to get to zero. No symptoms of ill mental health. But actually, you know, we have a minus 10 and a plus 10. And in life, regardless of where we are in our mental health, we move up and down that continuum. With positive psychology, what we know is we identify strengths and in those strengths incidences of flow and optimism we notice ourselves move on the continuum but aim to move more regularly up to the plus in so doing we shape the brain's ability to recognize that and we use it to do uh, it's a theory by barbara fredrickson to broaden our capacity and build upward So mindfulness is really key in this because if we're able to be aware, oh, there's a plus one, Mm, there's a minus five, we're then able, as I said, to act in a way that pushes us up the continuum, even if it's just for for a minute, Kent. Mm. Just a minute. For some people, 10 minutes is a, is a gift beyond belief. And that's what we know will work with your mental well-being. It's almost like there's that difference, isn't there, between merely surviving and thriving. Does that scale measure the difference? Look, the, the, the buzzwords of positive psych by Dr. Mm. Martin Seligmanger are thriving and flourishing. All humans deserve and are entitled to thriving moments. I'm not saying we're entitled to happiness as as a constant state. We're privileged enough to live in a beautiful land. That's enough, surely. But the thriving is something that we are entitled to. We want to feel the winds of all our hard work, of all our loving. And indeed, you know, to thrive is, is required. It's necessary. So you're quite right. And And zero... Zero isn't good enough for my clients, I'm afraid. No way. <laughs> no, it's, you, want to be, you want to be thriving. So anywhere between, what would be, okay, oh, just, just to finish with, with a number then. If zero is not good enough and 10 sort of at the top, what, what is a really good number between one and 10 that we could kind of aspire to be sort of hovering around? Yeah, sure. Look, it, each person is unique. But if, if, say, someone's listening who's had a history of mental ill health, and I hate that term, but that's what they use, yeah? So I've had quite a few experiences of struggle. Then I say, you know, zero is a good starting point. You're not experiencing any symptoms of what you know. But, boy, wouldn't it be great if we sort of regularly reach two, three, and then we're starting to recognise from there the goals that will take us to five and seven. And and that's totally possible for every single human, regardless regardless of their mental well-being in the past. That potential is there. Um, mindfulness, meditation, and general engagement in mm. one's well-being will bring that about. Well, your sense of positivity and optimism is greatly appreciated. Glenda Irwin, thank you so much for joining us on Take It From Us. Oh, you're welcome and well done. Thank you for asking me to join you. Okay, take care. Love this part of the show, Sheldon's shout-out. Karen, who do we have this week? 
Well, Kim, Edith from our, our friends at Drive nominated Gary Robinson for this week's Sheldon Shoutout. She says Gary started a Facebook group last year after losing his job at Recovery Innovations New Zealand. And as well as losing his jobs, he also had to oversee the dismantling of the organisation and he made sure that all of his staff found other employment. Now, the group that Gary started uh, called Light in the Tunnel, it's quickly become a supportive community for people undergoing recovery. He also facilitates a peer support group on Zoom on a Tuesday evenings. And Edith says he's an incredible role model because of actions like this and also because he allows us to see his struggles and how gently he moves through them. Lovely words from Edith there. So congratulations to Gary Robinson this week's Sheldon's shout-out. Now, does that sound to you like a guy that is giving plenty back to, to people around him? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think lots of guys like Gary, and we, we want to hear from you. If you know someone like Gary who's doing great work in their community, then do let us know on our Facebook page. Take it from us. Yeah, shout out to Gary. Uh, way to go, man. And thanks to Karen as well, Karen Murphy, who has produced our program today. And just like that, um, we've had an hour today talking to each other and leaning on each other. Thank you so much for listening to Take It from us. Please look after yourselves this week. Stay safe. Look after each other. And, you know, as Sean told us, Sean McNeil said to us earlier today, lean in. Ask someone how they are going. Someone might be desperate to be asked that question. They don't know how to reach out for help. Lean in, ask the question. Hey, man, how are you doing? We'll all be better for it. So thanks to all of our guests for appearing on the program. Thanks for listening. Jump on board our Facebook page. Look after each other this week, and we will talk to you again very shortly on Take It From Us. You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns, produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst, made with the real stories and voices from our community. And for that, we thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page, Take It From Us. Stop.